Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In an experiment, why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a new theory on life's origins. And a way to make tackling climate change more equitable. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up on the show, we're looking at one of the big questions. Where did life originate on Earth? For a long time, the planet's ancient oceans were thought to be the most likely petri dish, where carbon molecules came together to produce the building blocks of the first organisms. But a shift in thinking about the chemical steps involved in these processes has made many scientists wonder if they're thinking too deeply, and that surface water, like shallow lakes or puddles, present a more promising starting point for life. Reporter Dan Fox is here to tell us more. Billions of years ago the primeval oceans heaved with the carbon molecules needed to form the building blocks of the first organisms. Exactly how it happened is unclear, but at some point these molecules came together to form biopolymers, like proteins and nucleic acids. However, while life requires water, there was just one problem. The oceans may have been too wet for these reactions to happen. When we look at the nature of our own biopolymers, we see that all of them are resulting from condensation dehydration reactions. That is, reactions that in which we lose water. For instance, when we form a peptide bond, we take two amino acids and we lose water. How can we drive spontaneous reactions to lose water in water? Because this is disfavored. And all of them are degrading by hydrolysis, which is the incorporation of water molecules or breakage of bonds via addition of water molecules. And this brings us to a very interesting question, which is how can we drive reactions to form polymers in water? This is Moran Frankel-Pinter from the NSF NASA Center for Chemical Evolution in the U.S., 
She thinks the problems water causes for the formation of biopolymers make the open ocean an unlikely place for life to begin. Instead, she, like many researchers in the field, has turned her attention to the land and the ponds, puddles and lakes that filled and emptied across the ancient Earth's surface as the seasons shifted between wet and dry. Just like in today's deserts, we can see that there's a difference in the water levels between the day where it's hot and dry and the night where we'll have condensation of water. We can think of the same scenario on the prebiotic Earth, which underwent cycling of water activity. So we had seasons where it was hot and dry, and under these conditions, we will spontaneously form polymers via uh, the loss of a water molecule. And then we can think of a scenario where Earth gets more colder and rain pours on the surface, so water hydration levels go up. And in this environment, this is where we can spontaneously break down polymers and degrade them via what's called hydrolysis. And that cycling can go on and on on surfaces which have uh, shallow pools uh, or land or hydrothermal springs. Moran thinks these wet-dry cycles were crucial, giving the dry conditions needed for chain molecules like proteins and RNA to form, but also wet conditions in which only the most resilient molecules survived. And this is what she's been looking at in the lab. In my research, I look at the formation of protopeptides that contain mixtures of amino acids, which are the building blocks of today's proteins, and hydroxy acids, which are not found in today's proteins, but are found in today's biochemistry. And we subject them to continuous dry-wet cycling. We see that over time, we are building up polymers. This year, Moran and her colleagues found that their protoproteins could interact with RNA, and that both became more stable in water as a result. And while this clearly isn't definitive evidence of where life originated, the work by chemists like Moran has started to gain attention in other scientific fields as well. There's a communication going on between people like me, who are more from the earth sciences side, and the organic chemists, and I'm asking them, what do you need? What kind of environment makes your chemistry work? David Catling is a planetary scientist and astrobiologist whose work on the origins of life has had him look a little further afield than the puddles of Earth. Well, we know that the surface of Mars had lakes. We can see evidence for it. So, for example, the place where the Perseverance rover is going to land next year in 2021 is a former lake. You can see it's got an inflow, it's got an outflow, it's even got a delta feature in it. And we can see that not just in this place, but several places across Mars. So there's really not much doubt that there were lakes on Mars. And so if life originated in lakes and puddles or ponds, then it's a possibility that this could have happened on Mars as well. And any planet with a surface and with liquid water. David worked on a 2018 presentation to NASA summarising the prebiotic chemistry and advising where the Perseverance rover should look. In two months, when it finally touches down in Jezero Crater on Mars, he will be among the researchers awaiting its findings with bated breath. The next best thing than, than finding signs of ancient life or present life is to find signs of prebiotic chemistry so that one could imagine that Mars got along the way on the step to life, but maybe didn't get quite to the end of that process. And Mars is a great place to go because about half the surface is older than 3.7 billion years old, whereas that part of Earth history has been erased 
by processes of plate tectonics, erosion, weathering. So, so Mars preserves this record of, of a very early time, and that makes it particularly interesting. The idea that life may have originated on land, in lakes or puddles, is far from accepted, with many researchers still arguing in favour of alternatives, like the open ocean. So is it actually possible that this debate will be settled by a rover in a dried lake bed on the surface of Mars? There is a big debate at the moment about the origin of life, when and where it happened. And perhaps the most polarised end members of those are the people who believe that lakes and ponds would be the most plausible environment versus those who believe that at the bottom of the deep sea would be uh, an alternative environment. I'm not sure it will settle the debate, but it would probably make some people change their minds. That was David Catling from the University of Washington in the US. You also heard from Moran Frenkel-Pinter from the Georgia Institute of Technology, also in the US. If you want to learn more, you can read a feature on the topic over at nature.com. There'll be a link to that in today's show notes. Next up, it's Coronapod, where we discuss the latest coronavirus news. Noah's here, of course, but also joining us is David Adam. David, hello to you. Hello. Hi, David. David, you're formerly of this parish, but you're a freelance science reporter now. Yes, I am, yeah. Well, one of the things we've been doing here on Coronapod is obviously talking about the science behind the pandemic, but also looking a bit broader at what it's doing to the scientific endeavour. And for Nature, you've been looking at discussions in academia about the covidization of research. Now, I guess question one for me would be, what does the covidization of research actually mean? I think covidization goes beyond research. You know, in a way, being a freelance science journalist, my work has been covidized in that no one wants a story about frogs or exoplanets when there is this huge worldwide massive science story going on. So pretty much everybody I know is now writing about the pandemic and COVID and coronavirus. And I think in science, clearly, a lot of science is already at the front line of COVID, you know, vaccines and virology and epidemiologists. But I think there's also a large number of scientists who aren't directly involved, but would really like to be. And I think we see academic funders thinking we need to change our priorities so I, I think that's what COVIDization of research is. I think it's a, it's a huge whole-scale shift in the prioritization of research to do with the pandemic. And in raising the priority for that science, there is sort of seen as a weakening in the priorities in other areas. It's a really interesting concept to me, because in many ways, you might think, well, that's pretty reasonable. There's a pandemic and everyone needs to get some answers to this as quickly as possible. So let's put all of our eggs in the pandemic basket. But it's not quite as simple as that. You've mentioned that maybe other areas of science are deprioritized. That has really significant impacts to those people. But also this sort of all in everyone needs to refocus on COVID can potentially have some negative impacts on the research into COVID as well. You know, there's various ways that you discuss in this article that perhaps this sort of desperation to COVIDize your research leads to actually poorer quality research at the end of the day. You know, almost all of this is done with the best of intentions. I think there is a genuine desire among all scientists to do their bit because they're scientists. That's what they do. But, you know, if you're a nuclear physicist, there is only so much that you can do. And one of the problems that we've seen with COVIDization is exactly as you described, because there's been this pile on, you know, loads of people have started publishing and thinking about epidemiology or models of disease transmission, for example, that 
I guess it's a bit more difficult than it used to be to pick out the signal from the noise. There's a lot more noise and that can make it difficult for policymakers. It can make it difficult for the public. So we're not saying that only, you know, people who work in a particular field are qualified necessarily to, to publish in a certain field. But I do think there is a certain amount of hubris where people are coming from outside thinking what this really needs is a completely outside view. That's going to really help which, you know, we tend to glamorise the times that it does help. But in most cases, you've really got to know your stuff to make a serious contribution. And I think as well, part of COVIDization, you said it's not just research, it's happened more broadly. Part of it is also the way in which scientists publish and discuss and talk about their research has also come into a very different light. We've talked about this on Coronapod before, you know, preprint servers, blogs exist, they've existed for a long time, researchers put research up onto these places before it's been peer reviewed. But now suddenly there's this like laser focused lens by all these people that want information now, that's perhaps not taking into account the sort of caveats that come with pre peer review research, which scientists may be used to understanding, but maybe the general public and the media are not. And now there's this focus on, on those pieces of work that are being published in those places. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, there have been very politically charged areas that have struggled with this for a long time. So I used to report on climate change, which is a classic example. You know, exactly what we see here, non-experts getting involved, muddying the waters, politicians, policymakers, the public, the media looking for alternatives and generating this idea of a sort of conflict and tension and disagreement. In a sense, infectious disease has never been a particularly politically hot, sexy issue. You know, in fact, many scientists have been trying to get people and politicians to care about the idea of a pandemic for years without any success. So it was almost sort of naive territory for this kind of event. A preprint culture is ideal when it's scientists who are using that as a first draft and are working on it and improving it to then the published version. It's not so great when you have people like us and other people sort of pouring over everything that is produced. And however many caveats you would include about this is a preprint, it hasn't been peer-reviewed, you're still basically writing the story in the same way or writing it as if it is something worth taking seriously. I think as well, I'm quite interested by this idea of researchers from other fields sort of straying into this area. There's a wonderful quote in your piece from a philosopher at Fordham University in New York who describes it as epistemic trespassing, which I think is a really great phrase, right? Um, Because, you know, there is this sort of romantic idea in science that you know you should be interdisciplinary and you know Schrodinger had incredible insights into biology but the reality of the way science works in most cases is although people might be really keen on interdisciplinary research and there's lots of ways in which that's great it's quite rare to have a scientist from one field just make a flip and then say something really profound in another field without quite a lot of collaboration and careful work it doesn't quite work like that. Yes, I completely agree. So one of the recommendations that the same philosopher of science made was that you know if you're going to do that, you should collaborate. And I know as an individual reporter, a scientific paper with only one author on it these days is a little bit of a warning sign to me, especially if the affiliation for that author does not necessarily match the topic that they're writing about. What's going on at the moment is clearly the biggest story of the age you know, it's almost like a centre of gravity for science. It's pulling everything in towards it. And, you know, infectious disease and vaccines and virology are now, you know, way more high profile than they were. But assuming we have a finite number of people or a finite amount of funds, then all that sort of extra gravitational pull has to be balanced somewhere with, with less. Well, 
I mean, you talk about gravity there and, and funding. I mean, David, you can imagine that that funding has shifted a great deal because of the pandemic, and you could argue rightly so, but that might have you know, long-term effects as well. What, what have you found in your reporting on this? Yeah, so I think one of the issues with COVIDization is this almost rebadging of the different science as now pandemic relevant. Someone I talked to in the piece was quite concerned about the way he sees sort of people from, say, conservation who have been trying to get funding for a long time to do work on, you know, preventing deforestation, for example, which, of course, is an important thing to do. But they are seeing an opportunity of rebadging conservation work as fighting the pandemic because as habitat loss increases, the theory is that humans are going to come into more contact with animals and there'll be zoonotic transfer, and which is all true, but it's kind of basic science. The, the conservation is basic science, whereas I think what the people who really want the money to go and do applied clinical research are concerned about is that the money is going to be taken from their pot. So active stuff on the ground, which they know does make a difference, is seen now as quite routine compared to these interesting new areas. It's not necessarily that one is better than the other. It's just that when they compete for the same amount of funding, you could argue that actually the money that goes into the applied clinical science is going to have a quicker and a stronger effect, beneficial effect on the problem you're trying to solve. And then there's also, I suppose, the people who aren't working in COVID and and don't necessarily want to or feel that they have anything to offer, but feel diminished because they're not. You know, if you're a solar physicist, for example, or you're studying, you know, the life cycle of the, I don't know, the malaria parasite, you know, you're not getting as much love and attention at the moment. And I imagine, you know, journals are less interested in what you're doing in the same way as journalists are less interested and universities less interested. So I think there is a feeling that some people feel a little bit left behind. And that can obviously has impacts on their own morale as scientists and, and their enthusiasm, but also it could have knock-on effects for, let's say, recruitment to the field. I can imagine epidemiology and virology and vaccines are all very you know, hot areas at the moment, and you're going to get this shift of people and money and attention. But we do hope that one day the pandemic will not be the most important sort of scientific pursuit. And so I guess one of the concerns of the people who worry about COVIDization is that we are distorting the landscape for what is a very important, but hopefully a short-term problem. And that could have knock-on effects and consequences for the future when hopefully this is behind us. Yeah, I think the sort of short-termness of it is a really important point. It's so easy, and I think this is true even within, you know, the editorial meetings that I sit in every day to get blinkered by the pandemic and to sort of forget that the rest of the world of science still exists because everyone's so focused on this one issue. But there are lots of other problems that scientists have been working on for decades in many cases that need long-term solutions and that aren't going away. Even within public health, you know, once in theory, touch wood, we are past the worst of this pandemic, that doesn't mean that HIV has gone away. That doesn't mean that tuberculosis has gone away. It doesn't mean malaria has gone away. These things still need work. They still need research. They still need funding. And sometimes they need long-term studies that don't want to be interrupted by a moment where everyone just sort of stops looking at them and focuses on the pandemic. Yeah, I think it's, it's really worth stressing the idea that, although politicians would argue otherwise, it's kind of a zero-sum game. There's a finite amount of money that's going to go into science. There's a finite amount of scientists. There's a finite amount of attention that the public can realistically pay. And so you can't have everybody saying, me, 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 give us more, give us more all the time. 
of course, every individual lobby group is going to say that. But I think you have to take a slightly longer term view. And if you start diverting these funds and attention, it's quite difficult then sometimes to pull back from that. Well, we've talked a lot there about the impacts of covidization and it doesn't that many academics find them quite negative but if we flip it on its head given where we are now what's the other side of it i mean i immediately want to jump in with that i woke up this morning to watch a video of the first person being given a vaccine in the uk to much applause and much media coverage and attention and that in and of itself i think is a incredibly positive impact of the covidization of research yeah i mean i think there've been lots and lots of positives come out of this you know the fact that science has been discussed at such a high level for so long i think is going to lead a tangible change in the way that science is viewed by the public and by politicians I think the fact that some of the most famous people on TV at the moment are actual working scientists, you know, they're becoming household names. I think that we've all become a little bit more fluent in the language of science and the uncertainties of science. It used to be the case that the political journalists would sort of wade in and make everything about them and it all be about crises or the sort of soap opera of party politics. And I think a lot of people can see beyond that now and can see the long-term picture and the benefits of science and the fact that you might have to wait a little bit for it to happen but if you do it will pay off so covidization isn't necessarily a negative thing it's just an inevitable concern when you get this just large scale disruption to any kind of system what are the equal and opposite reactions to the action that we're causing and you know you just got to hope as noah was saying all those other scientific issues that are lower on the agenda for so long maybe now get a bit more serious attention well let's leave it there then obviously we won't know what the long-term effects of covidization are until they happen so david i hope you'll join us again in the future where we can discuss that but for the time being thank you so much for being here today yeah thanks ben thanks noah cheers and there'll be more from coronapod next week coming up later in this week's show researchers have been trying to come up with strategies to tackle climate change that are equitable regardless of a nation's income up next though we've got the research highlights read this week by sharmini bundell A capsule that hopefully contains a piece of asteroid has landed on Earth this week, apparently undamaged after an epic journey. The capsule was delivered by Japanese spacecraft Hayabusa 2 from asteroid Ryugu, 300 million kilometres away. It was then dropped from 200 kilometres above the Earth, spotted as a fireball streaking across the sky, before finally deploying parachutes to land safely in the Australian desert. Now it's headed back to Japan, where researchers hope to discover 100 milligrams of asteroid Ryugu contained inside, ready to be studied in detail. A team in China have used lasers to perform a calculation that would be practically impossible on a normal computer, thus demonstrating the first definitive example of quantum advantage. Previously referred to as quantum supremacy, Quantum advantage is when a quantum computer can solve a problem that a classical computer can't. You may remember Google claiming to have achieved this with their Sycamore quantum computer last year, but several researchers disagreed with the significance of that result. IBM claimed that their supercomputers could, in principle, solve the same problem in two and a half days. The new calculation from China, however, would take half the age of the Earth to solve on the world's best classical supercomputers making it a much more convincing example of quantum advantage. You can read that paper in Science. 
Next up, reporter Ali Jennings has been finding out how a computer model of the world's economy has revealed an unexpected way to deal with climate change. To tackle climate change, the countries of the world will need to limit their carbon emissions. To achieve that, nations need a framework that is economically efficient, fair to nations of differing incomes, and that respects each country's sovereignty. Which is about as difficult as it sounds. Nico Bauer from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Research is part of a team studying this problem with the help of a computer model that simulates the interactions of different nations. It is a global, multi-regional, long-term model of the macroeconomy, the energy sector, and the land use sector. So you can impose, for example, a global CO2 emission cap. Then the model has to somehow deal with that in an economic way. Nico wanted to keep temperature increases below two degrees Celsius, so he capped carbon dioxide emissions in his model. Then he let the regions of the world trade their carbon dioxide allowances between each other. This cap and trade system is already used by some countries, and in Nico's model, it led to the most economically efficient, the cheapest solution. But there was a problem. In our computations over the 21st century, the European Union would have income reduction of only 0.3 percent. India, however, would have 3 percent. So the relatively poorer country, India. Would be a need to carry a larger burden than the European Union. Many would argue that these kinds of discrepancies in financial burdens between countries would be unfair. So, could the model fix that too? If you want to neutralize this difference in the relative income loss, you would need transfers. So, the European Union would need to pay some money to India. This strategy would be both economically efficient. And equitable, but now there's a sovereignty problem. The countries that receive the transferred money have to spend it on carbon mitigation, and no country likes being told how to spend its cash. So Nico and his team wondered, what if they banned transfers to protect sovereignty, but still made sure that richer countries paid an appropriate amount for their emissions? So that led us to a solution where we would see massively different CO2 prices. Was more than a factor of 100 difference. The additional mitigation costs would be 2.6 trillion US dollars throughout the century. Under these conditions, the system is equitable and respects sovereignty, but alas, it's not economically efficient. So it's a kind of a trilemma. You only can maintain two, and you have to give up one principle. We thought there must be something in the middle. So Nico and his team tried relaxing the conditions very slightly. They allowed some small transfers or minor economic inefficiency or slight carbon price deviation, and they found something surprising: that even a little flexibility leads to disproportionately large improvements in the problem area. This is called a second best solution, where allowing an imperfect answer for one problem greatly improves the results for another. That was、uh, very surprising for us, but also enlightening, and that means we have a lot of room to find compromises, and that we should move away from the 
pure principles. And that is an important finding for science as such, but also then for the political process. So to me, that is a very reassuring result in a sense that we just lose a little bit of efficiency, but at the same time, we gain so much on the other side. Wei Peng studies energy strategy at Penn State University in the US. Wei thinks this second-best solution is an important finding, one that could help global climate policy to move away from unachievable targets set by centralized agencies. This paper demonstrates why additional benefits of this decentralized approach, the Paris approach, I call it, and that is we can achieve the equitable effort sharing through this decentralized approach without really losing much of the economic efficiency. That is really a good message to send to the policymakers. But Nico's model isn't perfect. It lacks certain details. For example, the model groups the nations into 12 different global regions, even though climate policy would differ at the national or even sub-national level. And Wei thinks that focusing only on carbon price also misses another important nuance. So in this paper, they use carbon price to proxy climate policy in general. But we do know in the real world that um, there are so many different low carbon policies we can choose from. It can be renewable portfolio standard, it can be emissions trading, etc., etc., or subsidy. So I think that's another important gap for future research to do in order to really turn the high-level idea in this paper into something implementable in the real world. But even without every detail... This paper will provide policymakers with new insight into the costs and benefits of different kinds of carbon policies. At least, that's what Nico hopes. This mutual understanding is probably very important and also simply getting a perspective on the numbers we are talking about. Some people say a trillion US dollar is a lot. Others say, well, that's not so much. But the key message from Nico's results is about compromise. I think that insisting on strong political principles has very serious downsides and we should not care so much about positioning our nations into corners of the spectrum, but moving more to the middle ground. And if that's what gets the world to a sub-two-degree future, then it's something on which we shouldn't compromise. Ali Jennings there. For this piece, he spoke to Nico Bauer, from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Research in Germany, and Wei Peng from Penn State University in the US. For more on this story, we'll put links to Nico's paper and a News and Views article written by Wei in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for this week's briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that we found in the Nature Briefing. Ben, why don't you go first this time? Well, I absolutely will. No, I thank you very much. Um, This week, I have got a story that was reported on ABC News in Australia, and it's about biofluorescence in animals. Now, that's when an animal absorbs UV light and emits visible light. Wow, okay. So I've seen elements of this in my life, going into the Sea of Cortez in Mexico and seeing wonderful glowing bacteria and feeling like I'm in some kind of sci-fi movie. Well, that's a very good point. Yes, biofluorescence is seen quite widely in nature in plants, insects and birds, but not much of it is seen in the animal kingdom. I seem to remember we talked on the Nature podcast last year about flying squirrel in the US that glows pink when you shine a UV light on it. But there isn't that many animals. Maybe until now, the pool of biofluorescent animals has increased. And it's a bit of a strange story. And it begins about a month ago. 
Okay, so where in the world are we and what kind of animal are we talking? Are we talking tiny little mouse or giant, big old glowing elephant? So our story starts in the US, but it is with sort of an iconic Australian animal, and that's the platypus. Last month, some researchers published a paper showing that preserved museum platypuses glowed quite vivid colours under UV light, which is very, very different to the brown fur that you sort of usually see. And this goes in tandem with a report from the Queensland Mycological Society, where a member was going out looking for fungus, I imagine, with a black light and, uh, and saw a roadkill platypus and shone their UV sort of torch at that and showed that that too was glowing. So there's quite some excitement about biofluorescent platypuses. Researchers in Australia said, right, we need to find out more about this. And one researcher at the Western Australian Museum uh, turned out all the lights, got hold of a UV lamp and starting pointing it at specimens in the museum and the list of ones that biofluoresced was was quite something i love this bit of research the idea that you would just wander around a museum with a uv torch in the middle of the night and see what glows is like my idea of amazing science and i love that we're talking about monotremes here these weirdest of weird animals these egg-laying mammals that have venom in the case of platypuses and also they glow i mean madness what animals did he find on his uv search yeah you're absolutely right now of course the monotremes these very strange animals were there so we had the platypus and he saw you know another platypus glowing and echidna they were glowing too but it wasn't just them it's marsupials as well so wombats uh, bilbies, which are these tiny nocturnal marsupials, and they kind of got rabbit-like ears, I suppose. And apparently, these ears shine like diamonds, according to the researcher. So, quite a range, I guess, of species. Okay, so you've got a load of Australian, although perhaps it's not just that Australian mammals glow; it's just they were looking at an Australian museum. But a load of species have these glowing features. Why is my main question? And the short answer is absolutely no idea, Noah. Other than this paper that came out about the platypuses, this work, of course, hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. It's just someone going around with a torch in a museum. Um, There's been a lot of maybe some ideas. Some of these animals are active at sort of dawn and dusk, so maybe they're using this as sort of a a camouflage. Maybe it's a way for some of these species to recognise other members of these species. But it all gets kind of complicated because the bilbies, for example, are nocturnal when there's no UV light. So why is this a thing at all? And other researchers are saying, hey, be careful here. Just, you know, pointing a torch at something and what happens in the natural world could be two very, very different things. So it is a bit of a puzzle. But I think researchers are coming together and getting some collaborations, I believe, as a result of this interesting and quite weird find. So, I mean, I guess I have a thousand questions about this and it sounds like maybe many of them won't be answered. But I'm particularly interested in why people haven't noticed this before. So... If this is UV light that causes these things to glow, UV light is in sunlight. I assume that maybe it's just too bright to see the glowing if it's not a concentrated UV light. I mean, you'd have thought you'd spot glowing marsupials hopping around in Australia. Well, yes, you do raise a very, very good point. And I imagine there'll be a lot of folk out there looking at animals in Australia under a whole new light. (sighs) But anyway, let's move on very, very swiftly from that. What have you brought to the table today? (laughs) Well, you've taken what is kind of a fun and exciting and interesting and bizarre story, and I'm going to respond with quite a sad story, actually, but not sad in the way that we're used to stories being sad at the moment, i.e. this isn't about COVID. This is actually about a really legendary telescope astronomy facility called the Arecibo Telescope, which has really sadly collapsed just last week. Of course, yeah. Iconic is is the right word, right? It was this 
kind of giant grey dish in the jungles of Puerto Rico, right? Indeed, yeah. So you've got this huge 300 meter wide dish and then suspended above it on cables was an instrument platform. And it's been running since the 60s. It really has, you know, a long legacy. And sadly, now it has died and it will not be able to function anymore. And this is causing quite a lot of sadness for physicists and astronomers across the world. I guess I saw the story early in November that some damage had been caused to some cables, but it sounds like that's fairly catastrophic what's happened since. Yeah, indeed. So there had been damage to these cables over a period of time, and there were supposedly works going on to try to repair them. But it was announced, and Nature also reported on this, that the Arecibo telescope was due to be closed permanently. But that was then followed by a pretty catastrophic failure, we think, of one of the cables that held up the 900-tonne instrument platform at 8am on the 1st of December, which led to, there's videos of this online, it's, you know, heartbreaking, the entire thing collapsing and pretty much destroying the dish as well as the instrument platform above it. Well, yeah, no, I mean, that is sad news, of course. I mean, there are people working there, presumably. I mean, I imagine they must be all safe, which is good news. But what's that done to to the research that was being done up until this point? Yeah, indeed. So there are lots of people there, but you're right. There was nobody nearby, according to the authorities there, when the collapse happened. So it's the dish that suffered and the telescope that suffered, not individuals. However, what this means for them working there is still not yet known. And in terms of what it means for science, you know, a lot of what the telescope was being used for in recent years was detecting near-Earth asteroids to be able to understand these sort of dangerous bits of rock and assess the size and the spin, trying to work out if they might be likely to hit Earth. It's also, you know, over a sort of 57-year career that it's been running, it's also been used for all sorts of things, including sending a message up into space in the mid-70s in the hopes that perhaps extraterrestrial life might be able to hear it. And scientists are saying this is going to be a really hard telescope to replace. There are other telescopes around the world that can do similar things, but, you know, this really is an institution. I actually remember when I first heard that the collapse had happened, it was from one of our manuscript editors who heard about it while we were in a meeting. He was really quite emotional when he found out about it, because it means something quite significant to astronomers around the world. Yeah, of course. I mean, are there any plans to rebuild, do we know, or is it too early to say? As far as I'm aware, there are no plans to rebuild the telescope. However, there are other parts of the observatory around there that are still running. For example, there are two LIDAR facilities that are also based at the observatory, which shoot lasers into the atmosphere to study atmospheric phenomena. They may well be able to continue running. However, as it stands, I think people are still reeling. There is an investigation that's been planned to work out exactly what happened and exactly how the telescope failed. But I think as to what comes next, that's a question that's still to be answered. Well, thank you, Noah. Let's maybe leave it there for this week's briefing chat. And listeners, if you'd like to know more about both of these stories, you'll find links to them in the show notes. And if that's just whet your appetite for interesting science stories, then be sure to sign up for The Nature Briefing, where you can get stories like these delivered straight to your inbox every weekday. And again, head over to the show notes where you'll find a link to do so. And that's all for this week. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, please do. We're on Twitter at Nature Podcast, or you can email us at podcastnature.com. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.